Hey folks, Corey Kupfer here. I'm so excited to have Liz Desbold on an upcoming episode of DealQuest. Liz is a wealth management RA industry friend for many, many years. Uh, one of the tops in the space. Liz, tell the folks what they're going to hear about on your episode of DealQuest. Oh boy, I think we'll talk about uh, advisors doing deals. Uh, can anyone do a deal? Um, how do you think about it if it's your first time? Um, you know, what are some trends around the M&A space uh, that we're seeing and, and the, I, I guess, the dreaded continuity planning that the industry still has to wrestle with. <laughs> I love it. And, uh, and maybe you'll be willing to give us a little insight into your own deal on why you <laughs> sold Silver Lane uh, to Raymond James. So we can hear a little okay. bit about that. Sure, sure. Happy to. Okay, great. So folks, check out the upcoming episode of Deal Quest with Liz and Nesvold. I'm telling you, it's going to be a great episode. <laughs> Thank you. Look forward to seeing everybody. Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Deal Quest listeners, I am so excited to have Liz Nesvold on this episode of Deal Quest. Elizabeth Nesvold is the Managing Director, Head of uh, Asset and Wealth Management, Investment Banking New York at Raymond James. Um, she joined Raymond James in 2019 as part of an acquisition of Silver Lane Advisors, which is originally how Liz and I met when she was uh, running Silver Lane. She has been described as the most experienced female investment banker specializing in the investment management and securities industry by Mergers and Acquisitions Magazine. And while that's true, I would just to describe her personally as the most one of the most experienced investment bankers, period, in the industry. Um, over the past 25 years, she has advised approximately 170 completed M&A valuation and strategic advisory assignments for a variety of clients, including institutional managers, both traditional and alternative, trust companies, multifamily offices, investment councils, financial planners, and investment consultants. Prior to joining Raymond James, Ms. Nesveld founded Silver Lane in 2007. Before Silver Lane, Liz spent 15 years at another investment bank, where she co-founded and led the first wealth management specialist M&I advisory group in the, inv in the investment banking industry. So you get that, the first wealth management specialist M&A advisory group in the, wealth, um, in, in the investment banking industry. And for folks who don't know the industry, by the way, that's significant because this is an industry that as it's matured, you know, in the beginning, nobody paid attention to it, frankly. And as it's matured, um, you know, there's become huge opportunities. And Liz was very, very early on. Um, she was one of uh, only two female partners at the time for departure and also served on the operating committee as a member of Young President's organization. She uh, earned a BA in uh, political science, a minor in uh, economics from Binghamton. So she's a fellow state school person. I'm a Stony Brook guy. 
got an MBA in finance with high honors from Fordham University Graduate School of Business. Liz and I have known each other for, boy, over a decade now um, and, you know, have uh, done some uh, fun stuff together. And she really is one of the premier folks in the uh, investment banking field in the in the services around wealth management, investment management, financial services and related. And so I am so excited, Liz, to have you on the DealQuest podcast. Oh my goodness. Now I'm like going to have to wipe some tears away. That was so sweet. <laughs> Thank you. My yeah, you know, I, listen, I, I always, uh, you know, there are, there are a number of folks who do it. And I'm not saying that I don't have relationships, but I, I feel like from the time we first met, I've always been, you know, unbelievably impressed with you and, uh, not just as a uh, professional and obviously with your track record and your credentials, but just as a, you know, a great person to work with. So um, I am, uh, appreciate you having here. Um, Delighted to be here. So we're going to take you back before we talk about all this amazing stuff and what's going on in the industry and what you see and why you sold Silver Lane. And I'm going to take you back to when you were growing up as a little girl. Um, What did you want to be? Because I have a sense it likely wasn't an investment banker in the wealth management financial services space, but you tell me if I'm wrong. Oh, my goodness. Um, uh, So I thought I would be in construction, actually running my dad's company, (laughs) which was a steel erection business. Uh, I grew up around iron workers um, and, you know, pickup trucks and big rigs and, uh, you know, I think weirdly, I didn't want to be a ballerina or anything like that, but I thought I'd be in construction. Wow. Love Nobody it. ever asked me that question. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it, so it's funny because I, 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 um, I, I get that a lot. I always thought the podcast that way because uh, it, it, it is, frankly, something that most people are prepared for. And it gives insight yeah. into the guests that I love, you know, and, and my joke always is, I, I think it's so, it's almost always been true that almost nobody is doing whatever they want to do as a little kid, right? So occasionally different. So, all right, one more question looking back. What was your first deal of any type? It could be like something when you were a kid or older or early in your career, whatever comes to mind. That oh, any my kind gosh. <laughs> well, um, uh, having taken home ec class <laughs> in junior high, uh, I learned to sew, um, and so I sewed bags, uh, quilted bags, and I turned it into a company, and it was called Designs by Lizzie B, and I sold it to local merchants, and they resold it. So uh, wow. my first uh, my first business was at uh, the age of, I think it was 15 at the time. I love that, because that's when I had my first real business with... Uh... Well, I, 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 they weren't employees because it certainly wasn't withholding taxes when my friends would deliver <laughs> flyers door to door. So let's call them independent contractors. <laughs> so I was I'm sure that. I owe some back taxes for those bags. I did that to Claire as I reflect on that. <laughs> I love it. So what what got you into? I mean, obviously from your bio, you know, I, I sort of made a comment on it. You you know, you got into especially the investment banking side around, you know, wealth management and mm-hmm. financial services and related, you know, services pr- pretty early uh, in the, certainly, you know, in, in the independent advisor movement and, you know, and, and early in the maturation of the industry. What, what got you into that? How, how did you end up in that field? Oh, my goodness. Um, you know, just, just even uh, getting into M&A, um, it almost was a fluke. 
Um, so I, I came to New York, um, the upstate New York kid. Uh, my husband jokes with me and says, I walked into saw New York City and said, oh, New York City, isn't it wonderful, mother? And just always knew that I would be here. But, um, you know, I, I interviewed at all kinds of places. Uh, and back then, you know, you really had to come in as a, an assistant. Um, but I stepped into a firm that was focused on mergers and acquisitions, mostly around the securities industry uh, and asset management at the time. Um, and then as I progressed in my career, you get to a point where, I mean, there was no training program. They just say one day you're an officer and now you got to go produce. <laughs> um, and, you know, there was uh, everything seemed to be covered. Everybody was covering the big insurance companies, the big broker dealers, the big asset managers with mutual fund complexes. And the only space that I had um, seen that I had done at least one deal in um, was investment counsel. Um, and they were lovely people, um, gosh, thinking way, way, way back when a little investment counselor, um, in, uh, oh my God, somewhere in Tennessee. And, um, I just thought this is, this is a nice place to get my footing. So I just, as a banker, um, that had to, uh, have production requirements started calling on these small firms, which uh, a big firm. And what we now call wealth management at the time was maybe 300 million right. to 500 million in assets. And uh, so, you know, I was fortunate enough to get some traction and nobody was covering the space. So I set up a practice group around that so that more colleagues could start to pay attention to it and started you know, staying focused on family offices, single family offices. Um, and the, the likely acquirers were private banks and trust companies and, you know, local institutions. Um, that's really how I got my footing. So kind of dumb luck all the way in. Well, you know, it's funny you say, uh, as a little aside, you say, you know, the right three, three to 500 million was, you know, big then, right. I, I was just, I just did a half day, half day whiteboarding session with a client is looking to do acquisitions and they're, you know, approaching 300 million. And, um, you know, uh, and it's been around for a while and, you know, uh, was joking that now everybody refers to him as small, you know, <laughs> you know, like really, and he said somebody, he said somebody he was talking to in the industry said, you know, who was another firm said, yeah, you know, and said to him, you know, we're, yeah, we're really small. We're only 1.2 billion. <laughs> you know, yeah. so like it's all perspective, timing, com comparison, right? You know. Yeah. Well, it, it's one of those things where, um, you know, never say never. I, I, I try to talk to everybody and while I can't thank everybody, give a little bit of advice, but my um, best um, repeat client, and unfortunately, I'm not allowed to say say names as my parent company, but um, uh, I did five deals with one firm that called me, cold called me when they were 500 million in assets. Um, and the final um, trip for us, they were probably eight, nine billion in assets. So, um, you know, never say never. You got to get your start somewhere. And there's a deal for every every size firm that's out there. I love it. So let, let's let's sort of uh, I want to jump to the present and then we're going to go mm -hmm. back to, you know, sort of how you got here. So, you know, you, you, you're currently at, at Raymond James. Talk a little bit about the, the kind of um, deals you're doing now, you know, in the mm -hmm. industry at, at, at Raymond James. Mm, boy, um, I would say, um, you know, size wise all over the map, um, you know, it could be as small as a, a firm with 30 million franchise value 
and as large as one with four or 500 million in franchise value and beyond. Um, you know, the, the really, really big ones don't happen often. Um, so I think we've done some 28 deals in the two years we've been associated with Raymond James. So, you know, by and large, more of the deals that are occurring are probably in the, you know, 25 to $100 million size range than the mega deals that everybody reads about. Um, but uh, that's where we spend our time. And, uh, you know, it really does run the gamut from the fee-only financial planner to the um, wealth solutions TAMP business to, you know, somebody who's working in the family office space who's trying to, you know, merge in with someone who can bring some resources to bear. Um, it's all over the map and it keeps me on my toes. Love it. So before, you know, I definitely want to get your your insight into trends and what's going on, the impact of the potential raise in capital gains rates and, you know, all the money that's coming into the industry. But before we go there, I do want to uh, talk a little bit about your decision, right? You know, you, mm-hmm. you founded, co-founded and ran Silver Lane for many, many years, mm-hmm. a highly successful firm. Uh, mm-hmm. You certainly, in my, at least in my outside view, didn't need to do a deal. Uh, you know, you could have been very fine, you know, just continuing doing what you're doing. Uh, but you chose to, you know, to do a deal with Raymond James two years ago. Um, and uh, I'm curious as to, you know, what was that motivation? Uh, what were the reasons for doing it? And, you know, it's, I'm laughing a little bit because it sort of puts you in a position where uh, a lot of your clients are in, right, who are looking, mm-hmm. you know, making that decision on whether or not they should sell. So I'm curious if there's any learnings or lessons uh, that, that you got or reasons that sort of coincide, you know, with, with what come up for you, comes up for your clients as well. And that's sure. Yeah, it, it's been a, a pretty incredible experience um, being um, on the other side of this. <laughs> right. So I am much more attuned to things that, you know, as a banker, you never would have uh, thought you needed to pay attention to just uh, on the post uh, closing front. But in terms of um, why we even considered it, um, you know, we had gotten to a point where um, we were, uh, you know, going to knock on wood. Fortunately, um, people have been very kind to us over the years since Silver Lane was known. Um, and a UK firm called us um, to pitch for a piece of business, and it was a sizable firm. And at the end of the day, um, they that leadership team knew we had better experience uh, than the advisor that they picked, but we didn't have boots on the ground in the UK. And even though they were looking for a U.S. partner, <laughs> and this is several years back, I just uh, walked away frustrated saying, oh, gosh, what should we do here? Should we start to think about a combination? I actually did have a couple of interesting conversations with firms that um, and advisors who were M&A advisors who were thinking of leaving. Um, but, you know, we, we sort of put that on the back burner. You go about your business and then. Um, we had done a ton of work for a firm that ultimately um, was uh, took private equity money in and then ultimately transacted and, um, you know, did our debrief and say, OK, we did all this work, helped you grow. Why didn't you call on us? And then what we, we realized of the big boys is that there is a um, you have to um, have deal flow that you've shown them repeatedly because um, invariably it's a tip out. Um, so we were not on the tip out list as a small boutique that might show somebody only a couple of deals a year. So that was another frustration. And the last thing that showed up on the list was we got to the point where we had partner a partner who wanted to do something different. 
Um, and she had a pretty good chunk of ownership in trying to, um, we, we were fortunate to be successful, but to try and address that um, early, way earlier than I ever anticipated um, ownership transition um, required us to think again. So we, we sat as partners and decided that uh, all the people that had called on us would be much more proactive about um, having discussions. Um, and did exactly what we tell our clients to do. We actually had an advisor, <laughs> a wonderful <laughs> banker who um, retired from doing really big deals who's a dear friend of mine, um, Keith Mitchell, who was of great counsel as we thought through the process, but um, made sure that we followed our own, our own blueprints for our clients and you know, navigated to what we were trying to accomplish versus the players that were in the marketplace. Um, but those are some of the things that that prompted us to think about it. It was really for most of us, it was about growth and continuing to build. Um, but for one of us, invariably, we see this. You see it a lot, Corey. I see it. Um, continuity planning. Um, often you have a window into that, um, given partners' time horizons. But once in a while, you get somebody who's, you know, 49, 50 and just says, no mas. Um, I want to do something different. And it, it was something to address. Great, great. So let's talk about, um, you know, what's going on in the industry, right? I mean, you know, you and I worked together on a matter that the client was uh, anxious to get closed before the end of the year mm-hmm. last year, mm-hmm. just in case capital gains rates went up in, mm-hmm. in 2021. Um, and, you know, I think um, I mean, I, that, that particular client acknowledged and we all felt that it was unlikely that something was happening in 21. But you know what, if you can get the deal done and be sure, why not, you know, on the risk of rates going up? Certainly now, I mean, I'm seeing folks continuing to uh, potentially push to get deals done by the end of this year, because if there is going to be a, and I think it's a big question on whether, uh, you know, Democrats can be able to get it through and not, you know, without commenting politically, either way, uh, we have to plan as advisors for what might happen. Um, yeah. You know, I've seen some acceleration of folks looking to get deals closed this year, just in case. What are you seeing out there? How much is capital get the risk of capital gains going up, quote unquote, impacting uh, what you're saying? Oh, my goodness. Um, you know, historically, um, changing tax landscape would never be on the list of you know, us to say, hey, do a deal because, (laughs) but I would say that's probably a piece of the um, puzzle for some of the firms that are really pressing to transact in the current year. Um, And in some instances, it's sort of sped up a lot of the continuity planning, uh, succession planning that you and I both know needed to occur in an industry where the, the key principles are aging. Um, and so, you know, if you're in the middle of your deal, um, is it better to get it done in this current <laughs> fiscal year than next? Probably, uh, tax year anyway. Um, but uh, we have people um, calling us to say, hey, if we start now, can we get it done by 1231? And the answer is, you know, it would be very tight. You know, it would be very, very tight and you got to run fast. And um, I mean, we do run fast. I know you run fast and, uh, you know, five, six months uh, to run a very thoughtful process leaves you with time to really figure out who makes sense for the business 
trying to jam a deal in three, four months, you know, this is the equivalent of, you know, Britney Spears going to Vegas to, to get hitched. We know how that turned out after six weeks. Right. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I love it. And listen, I, I feel like uh, there are many things we've talked about over the years, but you and I are aligned and, uh, and I, I do think, I mean, I did a solo cast talking specifically here on, on, on deal questions on, uh, on uh, the capital effect, I did two two mm-hmm. on capital gains, and one of the things I've said is, you know, if you if you look historically, you know, some people panic, right? They like, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's one thing to take something into account as a factor, mm-hmm. and it's another thing to fixate on panic on one single factor, right? Yeah. Um, yes. And you know, I mean, if you study deal flow and capital gains rates, I mean, mm-hmm. for example, in the '90s, capital gains rates were higher than even what. Uh, is mm-hmm. being proposed to go up to now. Sure, you know, we're going to get sure. there, and it was a boom time for deals, right? I'm not saying there's no impact of capital gains on deals. I'm just saying it's one factor, and there's all kinds mm-hmm. of other factors: economy, access mm-hmm. to capital, stage of ownership, uh, age, all you know, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, one of my messages was, hey, yeah, I mean, if you, if you were originally looking at, at, at doing a deal five years out, like you know it's probably not going to be the thing to rush to get a deal done this year you know if you you know if you had a 12 to 18 month horizon okay maybe you know or you know maybe you know it may make sense to accelerate it so um Mm -hmm. yeah but i'm you know i'm definitely seeing some folks who are looking to push so we've been you know we've been busy we've been busy in general anyway but we certainly busy last year and we're seeing a lot of deal flow this year so uh that's good. What else do you see? I mean, listen, obviously when, when I get interviewed, I mean, the, the capital options that have come into the, I mean, just what, 10, 12 years ago, it was almost, you know, it was so limited uh, last decade. I mean, the capital options that have come in this space. I mean, I said to a client, actually, I think it was on an interview the other day that I sort of feel like in this day and age, and I'm wondering if you agree with me, um, there is no good deal in the wealth management space that there's not capital available for. Mm-hmm. There, it is. Um, it is a plenty, and I think it's still confusing to the marketplace in terms of who you know who who provides what over what time horizon. You know, what are the benefits? Is it tax efficient? What are the risks? But um, there are more solutions today, more flavors of ice cream across the entire spectrum of financing to sort of um, financial with the strategic bias to strategic non-integrators, even to strategic full-on integrators and aggregators than I've ever seen in my 30 years. Uh, it, it is unbelievable. And what had been missing if we went back three, four years ago is a number of strategics um, but now, uh, you know, again, I'm not allowed to name names, but at least we can think of one outside this country who's been very busy. Yes. Um, you know, there, there are more strategics to the, today, but, but all that being said, um, you know, it is, it is from my perspective, it's a good thing for the market to have access to, um, because the, of all financial services, the, wealth advisor community had had a dearth of choice. Yes. Um, if you go back 10 years, um, and I like to think we brought every choice that could have been possible relative to the partner criteria. Um, but now it's very confusing to them. It, it is almost um, a big part of our objective now is to help them understand why these names that they know either fit 
or just don't fit remotely what they're trying to accomplish. And if they don't fit, then who should they be talking to and how do they need to think about it and how do they do their reverse due diligence? Um, And it's, it's just a very confusing time. You know, I I really agree with that. I sort of feel like it was um, for me going back, you know, eight, 10 years ago, whatever, uh, and, and, and over that period, I think there was a really confused, like, uh, that's when a lot of the aggregators and platforms and service, you know, started mm-hmm. really coming in, right? And I remember spending a huge amount of time, you know, over those years, uh, helping people understand the difference between, you know, focus financials model and high towers model and, you know, model and whatever, you know, and, and, um, uh, and, and that was the confusion, right? Because there were all mm-hmm. these new options coming in there. And now I feel like it is the same thing. I mean, it, you know, mm-hmm. with financing, because, you know, you've got, you know, you, you've got private equity, you've got, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, uh, strategic buys, you've got, I mean, mm-hmm. up until the more recent trend is a lot more minority investors, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, uh, you know, some some recent announcements on new, you know, minority investment uh, companies or programs from existing firms. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's... Um, you know, it, it, I sort of draw this equivalent to, uh, I think people are more confused about financing now. They used to be more confused about, and there's still some confusion <laughs> about the various platforms or aggregators or deal structures out there. So, uh, I, yeah, I, it, it, it harks me back to when I was getting a lot of questions on comparing the new aggregators. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Well, and, and what is great, and you just hit on it, is, um, you know, minority solutions. Um, from my perspective, you know, the, the industry became flooded, uh, let's say, you know, four, five years ago um, with choice. Um, but the, the dearth of choice was still in the minority solution space. So for me, uh, I, I would say we spend a ton of our time um, looking at deals in that space right now and having clients that really are looking for elections in um, minority financing, minority partners, minority sponsor investors. Um, And I'm so pleased that that is a a bit of the change that we're seeing because what that means is, uh, and for for a firm like ours at Silver Lane, that is commission heavy. So we start January one with $0 (laughs) on our PML. You know, it's hard to you know, recap and take a, a partner out when you start with zero dollars and you hope your PL is going to be better than it was last year. But with a reasonably predictable earnings pattern for some of these firms, it's easier for someone to get comfortable to take a minority stake. Yeah. Um, and so that was missing. And so it is wonderful that these are choices because these are also choices for firms that want to perpetuate the independent model. Um, and that was missing as well. Yeah, and, I, and I've seen, I don't know, you, see, you know, I've seen, you know, there's a couple of things that that helps facilitate. One is uh, growth capital without the founders losing control, uh, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then two is with some folks, it's an ability to take, a lot of them are using it for growth capital, but I've seen some situations where they get to take a little, some of the chips off the table, mm-hmm. you know, it's a mm-hmm. nice hedge, mm-hmm. they get to take a little bit off and then they can keep growing, which obviously, you know, before there were all these minority investment opportunities, you know, you really didn't have I mean, if you want to take a growth capital, you were taking somebody who was either, you know, taking uh, at least a controlling interest. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if you wanted to take chips off the table, you know, it was harder to find those kind of investors. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and I've seen, it's been interesting to me to see because, 
uh, you know, just because somebody's willing to invest doesn't mean that they can allow you to take money out of the company. They may want it in the company, but I've seen situations where they're okay with it, you know, with somebody who's more senior saying, hey, I want to take, take, take some chips off the table. Absolutely. And it's nice that um, people do have choice because for um, partners who are in growth mode, it, it's great to have somebody who will reinvest or infuse capital for sub acquisitions or office expansions or service expansions. Um, and for those uh, founders who may be at a different time horizon in their professional evolution to be able to take the liquidity that they need. Um, that would put too much pressure on their next generation owners if they had to absorb it in-house themselves. So uh, it's great to see this. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to CoreyCupfer.com slash assessment. That's CoreyCupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. So you mentioned earlier, you know, the, the concept, obviously, of succession and the owners getting older and you know, and I feel like uh, you, me, and many of us, you know, have been talking. About oh, no, no, no. We're not getting older. We're not, yeah, we're not getting, getting older. older. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, um, but those people, the, those other people. The, the other people. Okay. Um, they, um, you know, despite the fact that we're not getting older, we've been talking about this stuff for over a decade, right? You know, if not more. And, you know, and um, and I don't know, I, I sort of feel like a lot of us, and you can tell me it's different, anticipated um, that the pace of succession, you know, would be maybe higher than it's, you know, than it's been. And some folks in the industry will say there's even a backlog. I mean, for me, uh, we've also been in basically a 10 year bull market. Right. So, you know, I, I think that's a big factor, right. When things are flowing along and everybody's, you know, making more money, you know, each year, even if you're not adding new clients, um, yeah. you know, why, like it's, it's, you know, uh, and then we had that we had that little scare right a year over a year ago um, was March April mm-hmm. where we had that big dip mm-hmm. and and then of mm-hmm. course things came back up and we happened to be in an industry in that K economy they talk about that did very well last year you know um, but um, what do you you know have you seen on your side any you know acceleration I mean obviously uh, you know on, on the succession side. Um, do you, do you think there really are factors? Is it going to take till the next downturn when mm-hmm. people look and say, I don't want to go through another three, five years before this comes back up? You know, what are your thoughts? Mm-hmm. Where we are on that? Uh, you know what? You, you hit the nail on the head and it was such a brief um, uh, <laughs> free fall. <laughs> Is that the right way to explain it? Uh, and rally back that... Um, you know, it is quite possible that some of the succession that is built up in the model um, just didn't come to fruition. You know, then come the prospective tax changes and now people put their heads up. But I mean, as, as um, incredible numbers of transactions that have been incurring year after year over the last five years, when you look at the industry in the aggregate, um, only 3% of the industry or even less than that uh, of the registered investment advisory industry, not advisors who sit on other platforms that aren't registered, because this is what we track, um, less than 3% is transacting in any given year. 
but yet the industry continues to flourish and, and um, perpetuate the model. So advisors combine, new advisors come in, the number of RIAs is greater than it was the year prior. Um, and there's still a ton of uh, uh, firms that haven't really addressed their continuity planning. They do a great job for the clients, but still need to think about yourself. Um, and so, you know, I do think there'll be more activity over the next several years. And, and in the changing tax landscape, it is going to prompt people to revisit structure um, and how they assess deals um, because the disparity between ordinary income um, and long-term cap gains, uh, you know, may shrink. I don't know how much, um, but uh, uh, more than maybe anticipated. And that may require more creativity on the way you approach structuring to induce sellers to, to want to transact because the, the income that they earn may all of a sudden become very attractive. And I worry a little bit, even though I know there will be more pent up demand for transacting, I worry a little bit that you know, the, the uh, exchange for long-term cap gains versus income in a changed environment may prompt people to hold on to the cash flows mm -hmm. that they have and not mm -hmm. transact and maybe not even push that ownership down to next gen um, and invite more people into the ownership because they'll be glomming on to holding on to the cash flow for you know the next five, 10 years. Um, so, so we'll see what happens, but I, I don't think the activity is gonna slow by any means. No, I don't either. And, you know, and, and there's so many more reasons, however, the industry should be doing better on next gen in addition to succession. Mm -hmm. I mean, right. And just even people coming into the industry, getting trained up and, you know, and whatever, you know, so I'm hoping, you know, a lot of people have talked about that, but I don't know how well, you know, how much has really been, you know, been done. And it's, and it's interesting to me because it's, it's such an attractive industry in so many ways, right. You know, mm -hmm. uh, it's lucrative, you know, for, for a lot of folks, you get to help people, uh, you know, there's, you know, there's so many reasons uh, that it's interesting that it's not attracting, um, you know, that the industry is still doing, at least in my view, not a great job of really mm -hmm. attracting and then incentivizing and keeping the, you know, that, you know, some of the things we do is, is attraction and retention vehicles for, you know, key employees, you know, uh, next gen folks and how we structure that. And, but, you know, but, but the, the point is, you know, what you said, no matter how much we do, I mean, Whenever I talk to people, whether you want to call it a path to partnership or path to equity mm -hmm. or ownership, mm -hmm. whatever, you're going to hit a bottleneck unless somebody is giving up and eventually going out on the other side, right? You, know, mm -hmm. you, can't, mm -hmm. you can't have one without the other. They have to relate to each other. Um, Absolutely. So you, what, what do you see? So what are you seeing in terms of, um, you know, sort of mentality? And, and part of it is, I guess I have two questions. I don't know if you want to comment more on the succession side. I'm open to that. But then also... Um, you know, there's this conversation of who's really a buyer and who's, you know, and who's, <laughs> right? Which we've been Everybody's talking about for a long time. <laughs> yeah, everyone says they're a buyer, right? You know, I, I made this comment to somebody. I when I start here, I'll agree or disagree. And I always, and I honestly say, just, you know, feel free to disagree if you disagree. I don't. Yeah. Um, but um, I have found, you know, it's sort of like, you know, we're way behind in succession planning, but there was a time where everybody was talking about nobody was doing anything. And then finally people, heard it enough and enough that at least some people put some stuff in place. I feel like we've been the same way with, you know, this discussion we've had about everybody claims they're a buyer and really a lot of people aren't really ready to buy. I've actually had some of my clients who are small, let's say sub a billion, you know, AUM, right? The 300, $500 million type clients 
who have finally actually started doing more and talk about it. They, they've mm-hmm. sort of taken what me and, and many others, you know, said to them about really what it means to be a buyer, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and uh, what you got to get in place and, you know, why would people come to you? I was talking about then why and value proposition, building a model and whatever, you know, have you seen any trend in that area? And then uh, I guess the related question to me is, you know, what is it that true buyers really do right? At, you know, that other firms, you know, need to, need to learn from. Oh boy. Um, well, I, yeah, that is a big topic. Well, let's just um, unpack that and just talk about um, buyers. I mean, you and I go into any virtual room now. Um, someday we'll get into a real room and ask, you know, people to raise their hands if they think they're a buyer and mo- most everybody will, will do so. Um, I think everybody's probably a buyer and a seller of sorts. Um, can anyone be a buyer? Yes, um, they can. It takes, um, let's say, a, a lot of preparation, um, consideration, flexibility, integrity, follow-up. Um, but the earliest deals in the space that, that I would call intra industry combinations were, were by smaller firms. So you make reference to a, a couple hundred million dollar firm that's thinking about or starting to take the first steps to, to doing a deal. And the, the early deals that I can remember were beyond the big trust companies who are making the acquisitions for, for geographic uh, plays was firms combining to share resources and address continuity planning. Um, So is that possible? Of course it's possible. Um, You know, what do uh, good acquirers do well? Um, They deliver on the promise. Um, So they follow up well, they make it an easy process. Uh, It doesn't feel like a fight, it feels like a collaboration when you're really trying to think about things. Um, and they follow through on if it's integration, um, they follow through with excellent integration and support. If it's uh, digital engagement, you know, they're helping with the digital engagement, the marketing, um, or it could be as much as, you know, you're taking a financial investor in who's made the articulation or the, the proposition that they will support in, in helping you source and execute deals. Um, you need to do that because I can assure you that we go back and, you know, if you're on the other side of one of my clients, we're going to go back and talk to the people that you give us. And then we're going to go talk to all the people that you didn't tell us about that you transacted with, or even somebody who left the, the firm. So the, you know, does everybody do everything perfectly all the time? No, um, to air is human, um, but follow through is critical. Um, so if, a small firm wants to, does their first deal and wants to do the second, don't forget about the first. Make sure you nail that first deal um, because that's how you're going to be gauged going forward is the happiness and welfare of the team that committed to you for the first time round. Um, so that's sort of, you know, can anyone do it? Sure. What do the best people do? They deliver on the promise all day long. Yeah, I I, I agree with that. Yeah, the other thing I found, what do you think uh, about this conversation? Because I have it with clients, not if somebody's going to do a one-off deal, but if a client says, hey, I want to grow through acquisition, I want it to become a program that I'm going to do. Um, I always have a conversation with them on, let's figure out your model, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because we are in a competitive space. And it's sort of like if you, you know, even people, 
understand a lot of them that still don't even do a good job on this on having a differentiator or unique value proposition, whatever out to clients in the space, mm-hmm. you know, other than we really care about you and, you know, and we'll do a good job. Um, but I think they're starting to understand that in this competitive environment, they need that, whether they're doing an onboarding, onboarding mm-hmm. deals for employment, onboarding deals, major acquisitions, tuck-ins, whatever it is, why you? Right. And then what are you offering? What's the model you're offering? It's not like to be all things to all people is never, at least in my opinion, the right thing. Um, you know, I think the bigger aggregators, you know what their model is. You can not like it, but that's actually a good thing. Right. Like it's clear you get to opt in or opt out. Is that what you're seeing as well? Um, yeah, it's uh, back to the, the early conversation that we had about, you know, it's a busy, confusing marketplace you have to nail um, the value prop. Um, So if you're on the buy side, first point of departure is make sure you've done the homework on, is this candidate that I'm calling on the right candidate for us? And and you can't know until you have the conversation because so much of this is about cultural fit up front. Um, But, you know, how will you help me? Um, Here are the things that I'm looking for. Where do you fit? And how does that work for you? And if the answer is, uh, uh, let me think on that. That probably is a short conversation or maybe it's a, a, a one-time conversation. Um, so, and you have to know your strengths and the areas that are not strengths are actually opportunities. I view those as opportunities because you might find somebody who, if your real strength is um, business generation, lead generation, you're great at that, but you're a little weaker on the investment platform then great, focus on somebody who's really nailed that. If you're, you know, doing more of the um, uh, investment management, but not as much rigorous planning, find somebody who's in the planning space that would fit your model, the clientele, um, the footprint, et cetera. So knowing one's own strengths or value props and also weaknesses can actually be used as part of the pitch as well. You will own this domain. You're going to be the the tax planning, you know, uh, focal point or center of excellence or whatever you want to call it, um, that will be your domain or the financial planning or the estate planning or the family governance, whatever it is, know where you've got some areas for improvement um, and use that gap analysis as a part of the pitch, um, the value prop for joining us because, you know, we'll be able to bring your capabilities into a, a wider array of clientele. Love it. Let me ask you what you're seeing in the evolution on deal structures. Uh, and obviously, mm-hmm. we all know there's no one deal structure, different deals, you know. But in general, uh, um, you know, let's say, uh, you know, is there any trends in terms of cash versus equity deals or combinations? Is there any, you know, I remember a time when it was pretty common to say to folks, well, you know, a lot of deals are going to have a down payment of 25 to 33 percent. Mm-hmm. And those down payments pushed up significantly on the upfront money, seeing deals at 50, mm-hmm. 70, you yeah. know, percent. And some people have said maybe that's starting to ease back. You know, what, what just, I mean, those are some examples, but in general, what are you seeing in terms of evolution of deal structure in recent yeah. times? Yeah, that's a, a, a good question. Um, you know, it, it really is um, all over the map. There was a time where people really wanted a lot of equity and then we moved to cash is king and now we're back to, you know, hmm, equity could be very interesting and maybe that's a, a way to have another event down the road. Um, you know, I, I think the industry will, um, as opposed to this 
we had these trappings of get as much cash as you can as quickly as you can. I, I think the industry will will level out a little bit and start to look at the Aquaria opportunity again because it's a great retention tool for your top talent. It's yep. a way to continue to um, add uh, cash flow or distributions into your pocket. Um, and it's also a way to create another opportunity for a bite at the apple down the road if everybody's collectively successful. So I'd like to see more in the equity bucket um, than as little or less as we might have seen in the last several years, because um, I think that's certainly going to be powerful for the next generation talent um, to want to stick around if they thought they were going to be partners. Yeah, that's great. And and, uh, and any particular trends you're seeing on, on on upfront money, you know, on you know, the way I look at it is essentially on the shifting of risk, right, between, you know, buys and sells. I mean, obviously there's clawbacks and earnouts and whatever, but uh, any any trends you're seeing there in terms of uh, the allocation of risk and timing of money? And Yeah, it depends on who the party is. Um, but, uh, you know, if it is somebody who's looking at the uh, firm that's selling as the platform, the buyer tends to want to still risk mitigate to some extent because they're going to really um, hope that you're going to be that investment wealth center uh, of excellence for maybe a, a broader offering as a, a wrapper. So let's say a bank acquiring somebody in the, the RA wealth space. Um, if it's somebody who's already in the business, um, they, they may push the envelope in terms of the, the consideration because they know there will be efficiencies in the business. Right. Um, and so from their perspective, you know, it might not look like they're paying as much cash. And also from their perspective, they may be using a fair bit of leverage. Um, so the actual cash portion uh, of the check that they're writing may actually be smaller than the seller on the other side feels like, wow, this is a great bit of cash up front. I'm very happy with the, these proceeds. Um, so it, it certainly, it, you, you made a good comment about sort of pushing the envelope and, you know, it's, it's been an aggressive time for cash deployment and, and receipt. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think that will taper off some uh, as we move into uh, 2022, 23, where equity currency will matter, where risk mitigation will matter. Um, but it remains to be seen. Great. All right. So before I ask you my final two questions, is there anything else that I haven't asked you about that, you know, um, you're seeing in the industry trends that we should be watching out for or talking about or, you know, lessons people are learning these days or anything, you know, that's a substance that you think we should cover? Oh, boy. Um, I, I will say that, um, you know, I mean, we're in this SPAC craze right now. Um, with a lot of uh, SPACs that raised to plot of capital, a lot of desire to be SPAC. Um, you know, I mentioned this to somebody the other day that um, I would like to see, I can't say that the industry will deliver for me, but I'd like to see more wealth managers in the public domain. Um, mm. And historically, it's just felt more attractive to be in the private domain, but I think there'll be reasons um, where being public could have huge benefits, especially if you're acquisitive, if you've got some, some goals for national expansion. Um, but, uh, you know, we'll see what happens there. Um, there are just not that many publicly traded uh, solutions right now. Um, boy, you've asked such good questions. I think you've really hit, 
you know, you've tapped my brain. <laughs> right. Great. Okay. So uh, my second last question is that people want to find out about more about you and Silver Line slash Raymond James and what you guys do. What's the best place for them to go? Oh my goodness. Um, well, the best way to get to me is um, probably on Raymond James website. <laughs> is my, I don't know. Um, Corey has my contact. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> That's perfect. And, 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 and folks, listen, obviously I will, uh, you know, you, you can always, you, you can always I, find this. I, I could say you could link me in as well. I, yeah, I'm always it. happy yeah. to link in. And, and, and listen, Liz, Liz, Liz is, uh, is, is been generous with her time here. She is very, very busy and obviously needs to qualify <laughs> the folks she spends with, but she's also been uh, a great advocate of the industry and, uh, and, you know, uh, as um, in fact, you know, um, just, just uh, uh, sent me some folks who are sort of below her, her, uh, you know, size and radar and always, always willing to help out, make sure people are taken care of. So appreciate that. Uh, Liz, my final question on the podcast always is that mm-hmm. um, my highest value in life is freedom. And for me, that means everything from freedom from people from oppression in the world to mm-hmm. the reason I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur and, you know, uh, don't have a boss, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and uh, what does freedom mean to you in life and business? Oh my goodness. That's a toughie. Um, you know what? I would say um, freedom to um, be passionate about the opportunities that I want to engage in. Um, for me, it, it is a, um, you know, I, I, I am a, a nurturer. <laughs> I'm a mama. <laughs> I, I love to mentor and I love to um, be able to uh, give to these, this industry. I love to be able to give back. And uh, it, it is hard to be as free as I want to be when you have thresholds uh, and requirements in a bigger corporate environment. Um, but I'm, I'm passionate about the industry and the more that I can give back in a variety of ways, uh, the more the industry returns back to me. I've just been so, so um, blessed for sure. That's a tough question. I open and close on a way that's not, you know, like trying to get people thinking and a little perspective there. So it's all, it's all great. I appreciate it. Liz, thank you so much for being an amazing guest on the Bill Quest podcast. Thank you so much, Corey, for having me. Thank you, everybody. Nice to see everybody. Be safe. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.